Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. In our time remaining this morning, we will seek to finish the study that we began last week. And uh, nothing really changed this week. We started last week talking about all the bizarre things that had happened in our country with the election and the uh, results and lack of results and confusion and frustration and all that has been gone on. And, And this week really did not provide a ton of clarity. We really sit in the same place. And All through this, there is this battle for peace. Over and over, I have heard the refrain uh, from our own body and from other uh, believers that have been in contact with that they just state, or they're just tired, they're just weary, they're even depressed with all that is going on and, and really frustrated with where life is. So what do we do? How do we as believers move forward in this uncertain world? How do we find peace? How do we find inner tranquility in the midst of a world that has lost its mind? And 1 Timothy chapter 2, as we began last week, shows us an answer to find peace and tranquility in the midst of political crisis, in the midst of a political tsunami. Paul is writing to Timothy as he's leading the church there in Ephesus and trying to help them find health and peace. And he has charged Timothy with this charge to stand for truth. And what does this stand look like? Well, he says, first of all, of most importance, here is what we need to do. And he gives us 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. Paul writes, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. So in this text, we see the importance of prayer. How is it that we find peace and tranquility in life? The answer is prayer. What is needed to see a church come to health, to see a church survive in the midst of a culture that has become more and more aggressive towards the truth of God? Paul informs us that the answer is prayer. What do we need in 2020? We need prayer. What do we need for Cambria Baptist Church? We need prayer. How can we make it through this unusual and anxious time? Prayer. Often the last thing that we go to is actually the most important. We need to learn to pray. And so last week we looked at the nature of prayer. The four aspects that Paul gives us. He says we are to pray with supplications. This is the idea of coming to God as a supplicant. Coming to God, understanding that we cannot do it on our own. We need Him. And so our prayers ought to be prayers that come to God recognizing our need for Him. Secondly, we are to 
come with prayers. This is the general statement for prayer. Contains the idea of ongoing prayer, not without ceasing. That what do we need to do when trials come? Pray. When we feel overwhelmed, we're to pray. It ought to be a general state of life for the believer. Number three, we saw intercessions. This is an unusual word. It exists only here in in 1 Timothy 4, verse 5. And it's used to describe the prayer made on behalf of other people. Often we're very selfish in prayer. We're very consumed with our needs, our wants, our desires, things that impact us. And Paul tells us much of our prayer ought to be spent praying for the needs of others. Finally, all of this is to be overrun by thanksgiving. Thanksgiving ought to infiltrate every aspect of prayer. Even when we're praying for trials, we ought to be thankful. Even when we're praying for hardship, we ought to be thankful. God has blessed us incredibly, and so we ought to give thanks in everything. We then move to the objects of prayer, verses 1 and 2, where he says we are to pray for all men. Who does all men mean? Now, we noted Paul here is probably not speaking that we need to be praying every time we sit down for all 7.8 billion people in the world. You'd need to know their names. You'd need to know all about them. And you need to have the time. And no, we can't do that, obviously. What's he saying? He's saying we ought to pray for everyone, regardless of their race or nationality or political party or social position. In other words, when you think, should I pray for that person? The answer is yes, you should. Pray for everyone. But then he specifically zeroes in on a group of people that is hard to pray for. It was hard in that first century, and it's hard today. He says, for kings and for all who are in authority. He's speaking of our civil rulers. This is particularly poignant because in that time, he's speaking of Nero and those who follow, those who he puts in place. Nero, who loved Christians so much, he gave them to lions. Nero's who loved Christians so much, he actually made them human torches for his garden. And Paul says, you need to pray for Nero. When he says pray, he's not saying imprecatory prayers. Lord, kill him. He says praying for their blessing, praying for their welfare as the Jews were commanded in Zechariah 17, to, or excuse me, Zechariah 7, to pray for the welfare of the city to which they were being taken captive. Excuse me, Zechariah, Jeremiah. Man, I'm having struggle today. Jeremiah 29, 7. Pray for the welfare of the city to which you are going. And so we are to pray for our civil leaders. This is an unusual time today. So who am I supposed to pray for? A president or the one that claiming to win, perhaps has one. Who do I pray for? And the answer is yes. You pray for both of them. You pray that God would bless them. You pray that God would care for them. You pray that God would save them. You say, I don't like that guy. That's why you need to pray for them. Pray for all who are in authority. Rather than complaining about our governor, rather than complaining about our Congress, rather than complaining about the president's Give yourself to prayer. Rather than watching the news and seeing all that is going on, give yourself to prayer. Pray for all, specifically for civil authority. Why would we want to do that? Let's be honest. Life is challenging. Sometimes it feels as though prayer doesn't work. 
And our government officials are not generally thought of as the cream of the crop and the spice of life. Why would I want to pray for them? Well, Paul gives us the purpose of prayer. The end of verse, the middle of verse 2, he says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's one God. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and trust. And so in this section, Paul gives us the purpose for prayer. And he gives us three important reasons for us to pray for all men and specifically for our civil authority. We began the first one last week, for our sanctification. He says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Well, we're to stand for truth. We're to do so with the right motives to ensure that our hearts are right. So we're called to pray for them. We do this so we can lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified. And here we see two groupings of two, peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. The first seems to refer to a life which is free from outward disturbance. The second seems to refer to a life which is free from inner disturbance. He says we are to lead then, because of prayer, we will lead peaceful and quiet lives. That word peaceful is the idea of tranquil The idea of serenity, part of why we're so worked up in life is because we give so much more time to the news media and social media than to God himself. We'd be wise to turn off those things and to spend time in prayer that we might find inner peace and harmony. It says also we'll live a quiet life, a well-ordered life is what this word means. It's not denoting silence of speech, but rather quiet calmness, a serene demeanor. Looking at Paul's own life, we realize that this quiet does not mean a sheltered life, rather freedom from the turmoil that the outward circumstances might bring. So Paul's not wishing that Christians live conflict-free lives, but that their conduct would not bring unnecessary disrepute on the name of Christ. You know, today we're filled with anxiety and anger. Seems as though Christians are the first to yell and scream and carry on in the political arena. How can we live in peace and tranquility of heart in the midst of such a divisive election week? How can we stand different in the middle of a nation that seems to have lost its mind? We pray for our leaders. That's how. And we pray for all men. This is how we lead peaceful and quiet lives. But it also results in godly and dignity. It says that we make godly and dignified in every way. Godly refers to true reverence towards God, a right attitude to God and His holiness, a totally consecrated to God, to His worship, and to the fulfillment of His will. And dignified, that we might be dignified in every way, refers to moral gravity, a solemn seriousness of behavior, the attitude of respect with regard to the sacred realities. It means to hold life 
with dignity. We could refer to it as respectability. The idea conveys uh, seriousness, appropriateness. And these words, godliness and dignity, call for attention to the way Christians present themselves in public. To live an orderly life free from strife and discord so we can convince unbelievers that Christianity is worth their attention. One reason that Christianity has fallen on hard times, one reason that the gospel seems to be stymied today, is that Christians have lost their focus. Rather than praying for all men, rather than praying for our leaders, rather than finding our anchor in God himself before his throne, rather than running to God, we have run to every other means of communication in this world. And we've done so with a lack of godliness and a lack of reverence. Christians have rightly been portrayed as mean and vindictive and angry. And this ought not be. We ought to be people who rather than putting up signs about our opinions of our governor in our yards, ought to be known for praying for her, for her salvation and her welfare. It makes the people of Christ into peacemakers, not reactionaries. Show me a believer who is all over the place, who is struggling with where this world is and who is screaming and who, who, whose very life seems to hang on every election and I'll show you a person who has lost sight of God because God brings peace. When we anchor our lives to him, the reality is that it does not matter in the end who sits in the White House because God is on his white throne so we can rest. The second reason that we are to pray, though, is not just for our sanctification, but for God's glory. We do so because it makes God look as good as he really is. Verse 3 says, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God. The term good signifies rightness. It's the correct Thing to do. It fulfills our purpose in life to make God look as good as He really is. And it's pleasing to God. It pleases Him when we come to Him in prayer. One man said, prayer for all people and specifically prayer for the effectiveness of the civic powers conforms to the will of God. It's not simply an optional church practice that pleases God, but a practice as integral to the church's life with God as sacrifice was in the time before Christ. God's glory is that we pray. Third, though, we do so for gospel proclamation. He says, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, we could spend some time this morning debating the meaning of all men in verse 4, who desires all men to be saved. 
One side states that this means all men, meaning the entire population of the earth, and the other states that this has the same meaning as it meant in verse 1, all men regardless of race or nationality, that salvation is not limited to any one group. But to spend significant time here on that would miss the point of what Paul is saying. It would, it would lose the forest for the trees. So I'll say this. Share the gospel. Share it with everyone. If you think that God's desire is limited to the elect or that it's for all, in the end, we ought to act the same. We ought to share the gospel with everyone. But the point here is that we are to be praying for people's salvation. We are to pray that all are saved and come to the knowledge of the truth of God. So when we're praying for our civil authorities, one thing we're to be praying for them is that they would be saved. When you're praying for your neighbors and co-workers and family, you ought to be praying that they would be saved. And this is vital because God is the God of everyone. He says there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's not one God for this nation and one God for that nation. And everybody gets to choose their own God and they get there however they get there. And so if you're happy with you, then great. It's the message of our world. But that's not the message of the Word. The message of the Word is that there is one God. That's it. And there's only one way to Him through the mediator, Jesus Christ. And so we ought to be praying for people's salvation. God is the only one who can unite countries. He's the only one who can unite people. He's the only one who can unite churches. There's only one God and only one way to get to him. And this then requires that we pray that the people of our city and state and nation come to Christ if we want to see unity. As we have seen cycle after cycle, unity does not come through elections. Unity does not come through court decisions. The only way unity will come is through the gospel of Christ. And the only way that that goes forward is if we share it. So pray for the salvation of others. We are to pray for the salvation of all. We're to present this salvation to all. He says in verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. He's saying it's our job to share this. Jesus died so that all might be united in him. And the purpose of his death was to renew all things to himself. And so our charge, our call is to share that message with others. But this begins in the prayer room. The reason we don't share the gospel with others is that we're not really praying for their salvation. So the question is, are you praying for gospel advance? Finally, Paul moves to the method of prayer. How do we actually do this? Verse 8, I desire then that in every place men that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. In this short section, Paul gives us three important reminders. First, he says we are to lift up holy hands. This idea of holiness is the idea of pure or clean. And and this imagery comes from the Old Testament. 
The law required that hands be ritually cleaned before approaching God. In Exodus 30, 19-21, it's commanded, Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord. They shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him, and to his offspring through their generation. And yet this Old Testament cleansing was simply an outer picture of something deeper that was to be true in the heart. The, the washed hands were to be pictures of hands that were morally pure. Calls for a devout lifestyle that seeks to passionately please God. We see this in Psalm 24, 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to that which is false and does not swear deceitfully. Psalm 26, 6, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar. Psalm 66, 18 informs us that if we regard iniquity in our hearts, if we cherish it there, the Lord will not listen to us. In James 4, 8, we're told, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so the hands are an appropriate symbol of life and conduct because they're a bodily instrument in which most of our activities of life are worked. We use our hands. And so we must understand that he's talking about cleanliness of heart. He's not necessarily speaking about posture and prayer. So he's not saying when you pray, you need to be lifting your hands up. It's about your heart. But we should note that posture in prayer is never a matter of indifference. One man says it this way, The slouching position of the body while one is supposed to be praying is an abomination to the Lord. On the other hand, it's also true that Scripture nowhere prescribes one and only one correct posture during prayer. Different positions of arms, hands, and the body as a whole are indicated. All of these are permissible as long as they symbolize different aspects of the worshiper's reverent attitude. So, when you pray... You have to be right with God. That's what he's saying. Pray with holiness. Secondly, without anger. Without anger. The word anger is the word wrath or hostility. The presence of anger indicates the absence of patient kindness, forgiveness, and the other fruits of the Spirit, which are necessary to maintain a right walk with God. James tells us the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so we ought to pray without anger. Say, what if I'm angry? Then ask God to help you with your anger. Pray to God and put yourself in his hands that he might help you with your anger. Because our anger is often the result of our lack of control, our frustration that we can't control what's going on. And we need to be reminded that you're right. We can't, but God certainly does. And so we pray without anger, and thirdly, without quarreling. Quarreling is an interesting word. It means to think back and forth. It's the idea of arguing back and forth. It's our modern-day word, arguing. Hostile feelings, anger, produces hostile actions. Anger boils into fighting. And we cannot come to God with pure lives while we're fighting in the barracks. Let me say this, I think often one of the challenges in the world today, one of the reasons the church does not advance is that instead of fighting on the field, we're fighting each other's in the barracks. We are to go without quarreling. 
In the scope of the purpose of prayer being gospel advanced, these controversies bring the gospel advanced to a grinding halt. We're to pray for all men, for our civil authorities, even, I would say particularly, for the ones that we don't agree with. Rather than putting, my governor is an idiot, sign in your yard, pray for the governor's salvation. One brings gospel advance to a grinding halt. The other prays for its steady advance. One scratches the itch of our sinful flesh. The other demonstrates a righteous heart. Perhaps in the wake of these last couple weeks, you feel helpless and afraid. You fear the actions of the winner. You fear that ungodly or unwise elections will be made and decisions will be made. Maybe you fear the uh, spike in the virus. But you recognize that you are limited in your position as to what you can do. Let me encourage you with this. Instead of running to social media or the break room or the phone where you plan to slander, malign, rage, or advance a conspiracy theory, Run instead to the throne room of God. Five minutes in the throne room of God will accomplish inexhaustibly more than five minutes on Facebook or in the break room or on the phone. Pray for the salvation of your neighbors, your co-workers, and your government officials. Spend time reminding yourself of the God that you serve. Thank God for the numerous blessings he's bestowed on you. And discover a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Instead of panicking, pray. So let me leave you with three so what's based on the last two weeks. Number one, remind yourself of the power of prayer. Often we don't pray because we don't believe in it. Remind yourself of its power. It works. Number two, then, invest real time in prayer. This is hard. It's a, it's a spiritual discipline we have to build and constantly battle for. So invest real time in prayer. And three, while you're doing it, pray for your leaders. Pray that God will bless them. Pray that God will save them. And pray that God will preserve them. And with that, let's go to prayer. Father, we thank you once again for the privilege that you have given us to be called your children your children. We thank you for the anchor that we have to be able to come into your presence and find grace and mercy to help in time of need. Help us to be people of prayer in the midst of these uncertain times, to find grace and peace, to find satisfaction and quietness, to find godliness and dignity before your throne. We ask that we would be good commercials for the gospel of Christ in the way that we act with all that is going on. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.